You're listening to Episode 9 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Episode 9 of Chat About Children, where we chat about all things children and support and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today we are chatting about peanut allergy and your child, giving you the latest. This is a topic that so many of us can relate to, either through personally knowing or having a child with peanut allergy, or it may be that you're working with children that are allergic to peanuts. Whatever the case is, Australia has one of the highest rates of peanut allergy in the world. And it's something that I've experienced firsthand, discovering my own daughter's peanut allergy when she was about 12 months old. I remember being so nervous about giving her a smear of peanut butter on toast, only to observe her within seconds breaking out in pink, red, blotchy hives all over her face. Her eyes swelled. It was a quite a scary and anxiety-provoking experience. And even now, managing her peanut allergy over the years is an ongoing journey, but it definitely is a promising one. Um, there have been new research findings along the way, and it's definitely seen some progress with my daughter and created some new hope for, for other parents with children who have a peanut allergy. So what are we going to cover this episode? Well, we've got an awesome guest, Dr. Anna Dosen, joining us, who is a specialist pediatrician and allergist. And what we're going to be covering today is looking at understanding peanut allergy um, a little further. And we discuss why there has been an increase in peanut allergy over the years. We also look at how and when to introduce peanuts to a, a child, which is you know, often a question asked by a lot of parents wanting to make sure they do the right thing. We look at understanding the signs and symptoms, and we also get the lowdown on what the possibility is of a child outgrowing a peanut allergy. It can happen. It does happen. So um, listen out for that information. And you'll also learn about the latest research because there is new hope for children with peanut allergy. So today we're going to explore all of that further. Without further ado, we've got Dr. Anna Dosen joining us. So let's start the chat. Today I'm joined by Dr. Anna Dosen to have a chat about peanut allergy and your child. Dr. Anna Dosen is a specialist pediatrician and allergist. She has a special interest in food allergy, in anaphylaxis, and in immunotherapy. She's now been working for over 17 years in the St. George area in Sydney after completing her training at Sydney Children's Hospital. And she's a staff specialist at St. George Hospital now for the past 12 years and a VMO at Sydney Children's Hospital. And because she has so much more time, she's also a conjoint lecturer at the University of New South Wales and is also part of paediatric and anaphylaxis committees. She's done a lot of research into vaccine responses and anaphylaxis in Australian children with subsequent publications. You've been very busy, Anna. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I see that in your spare time you enjoy musical theatre. Do you actually get spare time? <laughs> Sometimes. I think it's all a matter of time management. Like most people who are busy professionals, they really need to have some downtime. But yeah. Yes. Well, no, it's good that you've got some other things going on. Excellent. So I'd love to start off by firstly learning what led you to an interest in food allergy. Today's going to be about peanut allergy, but generally what interested you in food allergy to start with? 
I spent a lot of time in diverse areas in my training years at both of the children's hospitals here in Sydney. And allergy was something that was creeping up in a lot of different areas. And I saw that there weren't that many people who were taking it up as a specialty. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. At that point, we hadn't yet got our allergy explosion, which has happened in the last 10 to 15 years. So I saw it as an opportunity to fill a gap in need. And that's what led to me taking up allergy. Okay. And it is a very interesting, and as you mentioned, it's an area that has exploded in the last 10 to 15 years. Is there any clue as to why that's been the case? Well, there are lots of theories, but no definitive reason. Many of the research areas feel that it's multifactorial and it cannot just be led by a genetic predisposition, but there is interaction between the environment, the genetic loading that a person might be born with, and what may or may not happen in a very early part of our immune life. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about that early part of immune life. What does that mean? Well, when we're born, we're born with quite a, like what I call a naive immune system. And it has to learn what it should react to and what it shouldn't react to. Mm -hmm. And I think of the immune system as a balancing act between making sure that we don't get infected by viruses, bacteria, and things that could really harm us and not reacting to things that we should be tolerant to. So this is where we shouldn't be reacting to food proteins. And unfortunately, we are A lot of the research around the world is now moving towards what we call the dual hypothesis theory. So this is to do with the fact that maybe we're exposed to proteins in a way that we shouldn't be, for instance, through inflamed eczema skin, or that we're not seeing it through the mouth in a form that we should be seeing it in. And that could be mediated because we've got reflux and we're on medications or we're not seeing that food at the right time in our immune life. And of course, there's the whole issue of are we too clean, Mm. that we do need some exposure to some bacteria to make our immune system know what it needs to react to. And some bacteria are actually very good for our immune system to make us what we call tolerant. Yes, that's fascinating. Okay, so get a little dirtier. Yeah. (laughs) Basically. Okay, so in terms of the trend, so there's obviously been a massive explosion of, and I'm going to talk about peanut allergy. So that's been huge. Just in my 40-odd years of life, I've seen a real shift without reading the papers. But there is actually very firm epidemiological data. So epidemiological data means that's the information we collect from large groups of people about different things. And so they'll do surveys or they'll do questionnaires or they'll look at hospital presentations or they'll look at office presentations. And really data from the 1990s showed that there was about a prevalence of peanut allergy in children of maybe about one and a half percent. But that's doubled in many of the studies, like three or four percent. So we've had, Australia's at the forefront of allergy research. And we're in very exciting times. So there was a a wonderful study in Melbourne called the Health Nut Study. And they took over two and a half thousand children who were coming for vaccination, just routine. And 
They decided to just take a snapshot of whether these children had allergies. And in that group, they were only one, and a lot of them hadn't even yet been exposed to peanut. Mm. Some had. And there was a 3% proven peanut allergy in that group. And they've gone back to look at these same children now just before they start school, and that has dropped to about 1.9%. Okay, that's interesting. Of school-age children. Yes, okay. But still it has doubled. We used to always say about 1%, but now we think it could be anywhere between 3 to 4% depending on where you live because it's different oh. in all different parts of the world. It's not just as simple as saying that's the rate. Australia has one of the highest rates in the world as well as Canada. But they've done a wonderful study in Europe where they looked at rates of food allergies for egg, milk, peanut, and they found that Greece had a really low, low rate for peanut allergy compared to, say, the UK or the northern states. And Lithuania had a really low rate of peanut allergy. Interesting. So it's not just one thing. So we're looking at what environmental factors, what kind of diet factors. There's a lot of variables. Yes, a lot of variables, but definitely there's been a doubling in peanut allergy. So what's kind of the typical age that parents are presenting with a child who has a peanut allergy and how should parents actually test it safely? Because I know personally I was nervous when Mm -hmm. I first gave a bit of peanut butter to my daughter who ended up having a peanut allergy. Unfortunately. maybe that's why I was nervous. (laughs) But I think a lot of parents do get nervous when comes the time. So how do you suggest introducing peanut butter and at what age? So there's a lot of anxiety because I think the public has become much more educated about food allergy. So you're right, Sonia, that when we were children, there wasn't as much and people were a bit more laissez-faire about how they introduced these foods. And then through the 80s and 90s, there was actually a medical recommendation to avoid nuts until children were three. And there are probably listeners out there who are still following that guideline. But actually, there's been a huge shift in the last two years. And that's all around a wonderful study called the LEAP study, where Professor Lack had looked at different populations and was trying to work out why one population had no peanut allergy and another population that was very similar in London had a much higher rate. And they found that they were introducing peanut a lot earlier in the group that didn't have peanut allergy. Interesting. And so they then took 600 children who had eczema, and eczema is a a risk factor for development of both egg and peanut allergy, And half the group were told to avoid peanut and the other half were told to start peanut. And they were starting peanut as young as six months. Wow. And they had to eat peanut at least two to three times a week in a form that a six-month-old could. So that was usually ground up or peanut butter mashed up in some rice cereal or sort of semi-liquid state so they could take it. And then they went on to eating it in other forms. And this study, at the age when they followed them up at four years of age, there was a significant difference. I'm talking about it, almost 30% difference between the two groups. So the group that avoided it had a much higher rate of peanut allergy than the group that ate it. Mm, Interesting. So now there's been a huge shift in the guidelines. And most of the allergy groups around the world, America, Australia, Europe, 
have now put together guidelines to actually recommend earlier introduction of peanut. And so we're recommending that healthy, normal infants who have no eczema or um, family history of food allergy should actually be encountering peanut in an acceptable form that doesn't make them choke from six months onwards to encourage that development of tolerance. Yeah. So, and how I'd normally do it, I'd say you could either have a little bit of peanut butter, like say an eighth of a teaspoon within some food, could be banana, rice cereal, and then you build that up to about a teaspoon over three or four days. And that's how I normally recommend to start it. If the child's a little bit older, say nine, 10 months, you might want to put a smear of peanut butter on a piece of toast and then increase the amount that they're exposed to. The group that we need to be a little bit careful of, and all of the allergy groups around the world talk about them as a targeted group, which is the high-risk group. And that's the child with severe eczema, strong family history, and has reacted to some other food. And that may be usually egg or dairy. So that group may need to see an allergist or their doctor before starting peanut. But we're still advocating that even this group, because remember that LEAP study was in the at-risk group who had eczema, should start it, but some of them may need to be tested before they start peanut. Okay, so we need to be aware of those risk factors or the predisposition, yes. if you like, so that parents can make that yes. or have so, that discussion. So not every child needs an allergy test. An allergy test is not useful in the general population and, in fact, would probably dissuade some people from starting peanut. I would only consider an allergy test in this targeted high-risk groups. Yep, yep, that makes sense. And now it's starting earlier. So I know, what was it, eight years ago now? Yes. It was 12 months when I introduced peanut butter. So we're tacking off another six months. Yes. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, fantastic. So if someone trials a bit of peanut in the puree or the rice cereal, etc., what signs or symptoms are they looking for at that point that's going to indicate an allergy? So a mild reaction would be a rash. The rash usually erupts on the face as tiny little hives or red spots, and there may be some swelling of the lip. A more moderate reaction, the child may have a more extensive redness that goes down the chest, onto the body. They may get swelling of their eyes or their lips. And the most severe reaction is if they had actual wheeziness, coughing, or breathing difficulties. So those are the signs that we're looking out for. Majority of children who do react the first time will not react as anaphylaxis, which is the most severe form, which is what a lot of families are very, very worried about. And I think some of the data does suggest if you're doing it slow and steady and you look for those signs, you're less likely to encounter a severe reaction. Of course, if there is a severe reaction, you should call the ambulance. Yes, and follow the emergency procedures. Yes. Yeah, makes sense. So if the peanut allergy signs and symptoms are observed by a parent, they should then follow up with their doctor and potentially get a referral to see someone like yourself. So what happens in that initial consultation? Does, Does a parent usually stop the peanut kind of in the diet until they see an allergy specialist? So normally if they've had a reaction, they're advised to avoid that food until they seek medical advice. Some general practitioners are becoming more trained. There are now 
greater opportunities to have more education in allergy and they may assess it as being a very mild reaction. It's difficult for families who live in rural areas to always Mm. get to a specialist and some of the rural GPs or even paediatricians may see the child and consider doing some investigations and then advise about how to proceed. If you're living in a city area, you're quite lucky because there are major centres in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth that have a lot of paediatric allergists. And normally you'd see your family doctor go through the story. The family doctor would assess whether you needed to see a specialist like myself and then you get referred. After the referral and you get to see a specialist, we spend quite a lot of time talking (laughs) The history is just as important as any test. Yeah. So it's not just the test. So we put together the risk factors, the background, what type of reaction through the um, history. We'd look at the child to see if there were other problems that might make things worse, such as chestiness, asthma, eczema. And then we would do the test. And there are either a scratch test, which is where we have a little bit of that allergic protein and we put that just under the skin with a scratcher and we look to see if you get a hive, just like when you have that hive in that reaction. Or you can now also have blood tests looking at the amount of antibody that's made to that allergic protein. Interesting. Based on that, we then would perhaps stratify the risk for that child, mild, moderate, severe allergy, and how to best manage it. Management these days is still avoidance and what to do in the case of a reaction. So mild, moderate reactions, we often advise to wash the face and hands if there's any residue, give an antihistamine and observe. If we're worried that the child is at risk for anaphylaxis, then they usually would have been prescribed an auto-injected device with adrenaline and instructed on how to use that and when to use it. Yes, okay. So, and a lot of us know that as the EpiPen. Yes. Yes. So in Australia, we only have one marketed auto-injector, but throughout the world, there are others. All different ones. Okay. So with avoidance, that's one strategy, of course, to keep the individual safe. There are cases, and again, speaking from experience, where a child can go through a desensitization type of procedure. Can you tell us more about that? Well, we're now, I think, at the forefront of the changing treatment. So in the past, we didn't have a lot of treatment modalities. It was just avoidance and manage the reaction and hopeful that the child will outgrow it. The statistics are for peanut allergy, only about 20, maybe 22% of children actually outgrow their peanut allergy by the time they're 16. So the whole discussion about the active management of food allergy is one, can we prevent it? So now we have some good data that earlier introduction may help prevent longer term allergy. So what do we do with the children who are already sensitized or already have an allergy? Well, now there are lots of studies throughout the world looking at immunotherapy. Immunotherapy has been used for dust and pollen and animal hair for people who have allergic hay fever. So it's not a new therapy. In fact, food immunotherapy was used in the 1970s, but we didn't have a good understanding of the 
actual immunology. And so it wasn't done in a way that was useful. And so it sort of fell by the wayside. But in the last um, 10 years, there's been a lot of research about particularly peanut immunotherapy. And we believe in the allergy world that this is what will be coming in the not too distant future, where we give very, very small amounts of it in a designated amount that we double every two weeks. And we try to see if that can then induce that balance between a proactive and a tolerant immune system. And so there's lots of good evidence that that's probably going to come our way. So there's oral immunotherapy, sublingual immunotherapy, and they're also working on a epicutaneous patch immunotherapy. Wow, that's really exciting, actually. It is very exciting, very it's exciting. Really exciting. Okay, so can we go over those, because I'm really excited about the future <laughs> management, as you can see, but can we go over those again? So you've got oral therapy, which is where a child is consuming amounts of yes. peanut and that yes. amount increases over time. And then what was the other one you mentioned? Sublingual, where they under, have drops under the tongue. Perfect. And that would be like daily or yes, there's daily. a frequency to that. And then there's a patch. Yes. That they're currently in the process of... Developing. It's still in research. Okay. That's cool. <laughs> That's so really cool. It's, it's really interesting. So they're finding different results with the different forms of immunotherapy. The oral immunotherapy, where you actually swallow it and it goes through your intestine has the best results so far. Mm-hmm. And of course, as I said, Australia is doing a lot of research, including a fabulous group down in Melbourne. And they're doing it as measured capsules that the child swallows. Prior to that, it was actually that they just had to eat it. And they would come into hospital for the first few weeks every day and eat it. And then they would start to continue eating it at home. The sublingual drops aren't as effective in terms of inducing tolerance, but had fewer side effects than the oral form. And the patch form has fewer side effects again, but they don't feel that the tolerance induced by the patch form is as good as the oral form. Okay. So there may in fact be different forms of immunotherapy for different forms of peanut allergy. And the other thing that's coming along with that is some better diagnostic tools. So we have a better understanding of the molecular basis of peanut allergy. So any protein is made up of a bunch of amino acids. And if I was here with you, with a patient, I usually get a string and I bundle it up and I say, that's your protein. But if you stretch it out, there are different sections and your antibody attaches to different parts. It doesn't attach to the whole protein. And we may be able to predict who is more likely to outgrow their peanut allergy through this type of testing and start peanut earlier compared to another group who might be more likely to have a more severe reaction. So we'd be more cautious about introduction of peanut. Yes. So there's a lot of tools there to look at prevention. Uh, So prevention or just predictability, really. And then there's different forms coming up to manage and treat and hopefully we get a better idea as to whether a child is going to outgrow yes. or has the tendency, ability yes. to outgrow. The ability to outgrow it. Yeah. So we're talking about being able to diagnose a high risk compared to a low risk, earlier introduction in the general population and immunotherapy to modulate the immune system and target it to different groups dependent on their risk factors. 
So how far are we from some of these <laughs> immunotherapy methods coming into play? Yeah, where are they at with the clinical trials and what do you, what's the timeline if we have one? I think maybe five years Okay. for it to come to practice. Your listeners may be aware that there are centres in the United States that do offer this therapy and I have heard of some families who are travelling to the United States but the Australian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy do have a statement that says at this point we don't believe that it's quite ready for general management measures for peanut allergy. I know people get excited and want to jump the bandwagon and but I would caution them to still see someone and assess the risk factors for their child before trying to do any of these things themselves. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, it is exciting, so Mm. we'll have to just watch this space. Yes, absolutely. So I guess when we're looking at children who do have a diagnosed allergy and they are using the adrenaline injector, if I can call it that, when's the best time and what's the best way to educate a child in, say, how to use it or about peanut? Do you have some tips or strategies that might be useful for educators and professionals and parents? So normally once a child is towards the end of their primary school years and definitely before they start high school, I do educate the young person in how to use it themselves Mm -hmm. and to also understand the symptoms that may occur that would require them to have the auto-injector. There are some quite savvy 10-year-olds that could be able to do it, but usually by high school, we'd be expecting them to be able to do it themselves. There are tools available online. So the company that brings in the auto-injector has a website that goes through how to use it. They've also developed an app that people can download about how to use it. Nurses in a lot of the centres spend a lot of time educating families about it. So there are those sort of tools to educate it, yep. the young person. Fantastic. Yeah, because I think that does form part of anxiety for parents. Is oh, anxiety sure around okay. food allergies is quite high. There have been a lot of studies that do show that the quality of life of a child with a food allergy is comparable to any other child who has a chronic illness. Mm. And it shouldn't be thought of as a minor issue. They may not be able to have certain things and miss out on foods at school or at parties. And particularly as they go into their teenage years, and we do worry about teenagers because they seem to have a higher risk rate for anaphylaxis because they don't want to tell their friends they've got a food allergy they go out, they don't tell anyone, they start having a reaction, no one knows what to do. Yes. Yeah, I can imagine the stress involved. And yeah, I was in that boat when my daughter was first diagnosed and I was already projecting ahead thinking, oh my goodness, what does this mean? And I think that's a very natural reaction that parents would have. So what's the takeaway message that you have for parents who are listening that do have a peanut allergy? What are your kind of final messages? I think that if your child already has had a reaction and has been diagnosed with a peanut allergy, continue to avoid it, continue to see your specialist, understand that not every child will have anaphylaxis. In fact, the minority will, and most children will have minor reactions which can be managed. 
there's a lot of new information that's coming and hope for the future for modulating the immune system. And I'm still a great believer that there's going to be a changing face to food allergy in Australia and the world where we have less food allergy. That sounds ideal. Yes. Fantastic. Well, then keep up the good work. (laughs) Fantastic. I think it's been an amazing informative session today and that the professionals and the educators and the parents out there have certainly got a lot from listening to your expertise today. So thank you so much, Dr. Anna Dosen. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Sonia. What a fascinating chat with Dr. Anna Dosen and how exciting are the possibilities looking at the future for those with a peanut allergy. Now, I know Dr. Anna Dosen did mention some research papers throughout that chat and they have been listed in our show notes. So be sure to access those if you'd like to read more. And she also did recommend to me checking out a website, allergy.org.au, allergy.org.au. So well worth checking out for you know, parents, carers and educators out there. And that's all listed on our show notes on chataboutchildren.com. So what have we got in store for episode 10? Well, episode 10 is all about attention. We're going to delve into what attention skills really are and what is typical in terms of attention development in those early years. And we're also going to look at understanding, you know, when is it that a child might need some further support in developing their attention further. Attention is just critical, as we know, for effective learning. And we're going to explore that with an occupational therapist who does work extensively in assessing attention and supporting its development in children so that their learning can be maximized. So make sure you tune in for that one. Also remember, if you have enjoyed this episode, please do share it with family, friends and with colleagues. I'd love for you to subscribe to the episode and feel free to leave a rating and review. That is it for today. I celebrate you. Take care and chat soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestalich, www.chataboutchildren.com.